Morning, church. I am Jim Hinkle. I thought Kip was about to say I was one of your favorite people, but then you said (laughs) Joseph is one of your favorite people in Scripture, so almost. Uh, Josh Ross is our regular preaching minister. He's in Montgomery, Alabama speaking today, but I'm excited to be here, and I'm excited to have the opportunity um, to do something uh, with our entire congregation, and it's always interesting Uh, Since my kids are used to me being in ministry, but not always used to me being the preacher, and so uh, it was really sweet. I had a special moment with uh, my 13-year-old Caleb yesterday as we were talking, and he found out I was preaching. And then he said those three words that every dad wants to hear from his son, short and sweet. (laughs) So I appreciate the vote of confidence from within my own household and uh, we'll, we'll see how short and sweet we can keep it today. Um, <clears throat> choosing purpose in the pain. It's not exactly a light subject, but this is, this is what's been on my heart. There are lots of examples of places where pain does have purpose, and probably one of the most uh, familiar examples is this, Right? going to get your shots. We're having a flu clinic here that Fawn was trying to dress up to sound very exciting and very enticing and will stop you from getting all kinds of diseases and ailments. But we know that if you get a shot and you get a vaccine, then you, uh, that temporary pain hopefully will, in the bigger, broader picture, save you from something greater and worse on down the road. That's why we tell fibs to our children when they get in the car and they're little children and they say, dad, where are we going? And we say, oh, just going to run an errand, but we really mean we're going to get you a shot, right? And they pull up and if they're old enough and they remember what the doctor's office looks like, they burst into tears and they're like, you lied to me. We're like, ah, but it's for your own good. So there's purpose in, in pain. And I think the story of Joseph, uh, which has kind of gotten a hold of my heart the last couple weeks, and I've uh, been really blessed just to read through this long narrative in the book of Genesis. So if, you, if you've got your Bible this morning, open up to Genesis 37. And I'm just going to kind of share the story of Joseph. I assume that a lot of you know it. I assume that some of you know it really well. And I also assume some of you don't know it at all. So maybe all together, we can just kind of walk through Uh, this big chunk of scripture at the end of the first book of the Bible and see what kind of uh, word Joseph might have for us today. And if nothing else comes out of today with this sermon, I I hope you'll go home and read Joseph for yourself. Uh, It's such an inspiring story. So we begin in Joseph, or we begin in Genesis 37, and we find out from the beginning that Jacob who is Joseph's father. And this story, story is significant because this is the story of God creating a people of his own who would uh, be called his own, who would become the Jews, who would become the lineage of Jesus, which would bring salvation to the world. So a lot's going on here. And we find out Jacob had 12 sons, and one of them, he was uh, poorly parenting because he had favorited Joseph. And he had made him a richly ornamented robe Or as we learned when we were kids, if you grew up in church, a coat of many colors, right? And so that didn't sit well with the brothers. 
which, of course, would not sit well with brothers. And so along the line, as Joseph is growing up, he's beginning to become a young man, and God gives him two dreams. And in these two dreams, they're both related to the brothers that he's not on good terms with already. The first involves he and the brothers all binding sheaves of grain, not something most of us are familiar with, but they're binding their sheaves of grain and they're bent over. And then all of a sudden in the dream, his sheaf stands up and all the others bow down to him. And in the second dream, it involves constellations. And these constellations are 11 stars, 11 brothers, the sun and the moon, mom and dad, and all of the constellations, they come and they worship Joseph in the dream. So God initiates this process of helping Joseph see that there's a bigger picture in store. And Joseph, I don't know if this was wise. I don't know if he had a burden to share what God had given him. I don't know if he was just vindictive and he thought this is going to get those guys really good, but he tells his brothers the dreams, which does not bring or bring about family bonding. And so that leads into the next section of Joseph's story, which is the cell, the cell, the dreams lead to the cell. And so Joseph's brothers are out, they're tending flocks. Jacob says to Joseph, go check on your brothers. And so he goes to check on his brothers, and there's a, from a long distance off, the brothers see Joseph. And as he approaches in verse 30, uh, chapter 37, 18 and 19, they saw him in the distance. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. And they said this, here comes the dreamer. So Reuben, who's the firstborn, trying to be responsible, he speaks up. And he says, hey, instead of killing him, let's throw him in this empty cistern with the intention of him coming back to rescue his brother. So they decide to strip Joseph of his coat of many colors, his highly, richly ornamented robe. They kill a goat, they put blood on it, and they leave uh, Joseph in the cistern. Reuben steps off for a little while. And along come some traders, the Ishmaelites. They're on their way to Egypt, and they have goods. They have spices and things like that, uh, exotic, that will draw a big price in Egypt. So they're on their way, and one of the brothers said, you know, if we just leave him to die, we don't get anything out of this. Let's sell him. So in this moment, when Joseph is in the pit, he's escaped death, but now... He's into maybe kind of what Seth was talking about. He's freed, but he's freed into a wilderness. He's sold into slavery, and he ends up in the house of the captain of the guard for Pharaoh, whose name is Potiphar. And initially, if you're with me, I'm in Genesis 39 now. This moves on kind of to the third stopping point in Joseph's uh, life, this third point of pain. It says in verses 2 through 6, While serving Potiphar, the Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, The Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. And Potiphar did not concern himself with anything but the food he ate. But, 
Joseph was a good-looking guy. And Mrs. Potiphar noticed. And so Mrs. Potiphar begins to pressure Joseph to come to bed with her. And he says, no, no, no. She says, yes, yes, yes. And she pressures him day after day after day. And he says, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And one day it's just Joseph and Mrs. Potiphar in the house. And she says, come to bed with me. And he says, no. And he literally runs out the door. And as she grasps for him, she has his cloak in her hands. She realizes it's just her and Joseph's clothes. And she screams for help, says, that slave tried to rape me. And Joseph is uh, lied about, and he's arrested, and he's thrown into prison, which is the next stopping point for Joseph. The very first thing Genesis tells us in uh, chapter 39, verses 21 through 23, about the imprisonment is, The Lord was with him. He showed him kindness, and he granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care. Sounds like Potiphar. Because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. So he's in prison. God's still with him, and all of a sudden, people are taking notice. There's something about this guy, but Joseph's still in prison, so it sounds nice. God's with him, but he's still in this point of, of pain, and so he notices that there's a couple of other prisoners who look dejected. I think this is an incredible testimony to kind of a pastoral sensitivity that Joseph has because he's in charge of the prisoners and he sees a couple prisoners who are down the next day. So he says, what's going on in chapter 40? And they said, well, we had these dreams. And Joseph claims God's authority and power over dreams in verse 8. And he says, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer goes first. And he says, in front of me, I was a cupbearer to the Pharaoh, and I had a dream where there was a vine that grew up. And on this vine, there were three branches. And on these branches, they grew buds, and then they blossomed, and then uh, fruit, grapes, ripened on it. And I took the grapes, and I squeezed the juice into a cup, and I put the cup directly into Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph says, this is what that dream means. In three days, you will be back in the service of Pharaoh. Well, the chief baker says, that sounds pretty cool. I'm going to tell you my dream. I had a basket on my head, and I had bread in it, and birds came, and they ate the bread out of the basket. And Joseph says, well, that means that in three days, you'll be hanged, and birds will come and eat your flesh. And I'm sure there was some remorse from the baker, thinking maybe I just shouldn't have asked. But Joseph tells the chief cupbearer, he says, remember me. Don't forget about me so I can get out of this prison. It happened just as uh, Joseph interpreted. And so the chief cupbearer, after three days, was put back into the service of Pharaoh, but he was not, uh, he he did not have a good memory, so he forgot about Joseph. Until two years later, the Pharaoh has a dream. He has a couple dreams, and the dreams are very similar to each other. We're in chapter 41. Pharaoh dreams of cows 
and heads of grain. At first, there are seven healthy cows, and there's seven healthy heads of grain. And basically, the end of those dreams is skinny, sickly cows eat the fat, healthy cows, and withered, dry heads of grain swallow up the healthy heads of grain. And no one has any idea what this means. The cupbearer says, hey, now I remember. Two years later, there was a guy in prison, a young Jew, a Hebrew, and he interpreted my dreams. So Pharaoh calls Joseph out of prison, and he says, can you tell me what this means? And he says in verse 16, I cannot do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. And so God reveals that this is what that dream means. We're going to have seven years of abundance, but then we're going to be followed by seven years of famine. And then Joseph comes up with a plan. And I don't know if this is God's plan or if this is Joseph's plan. And one of the things I love about the Joseph story, it's constantly God acting and Joseph acting, and they kind of intermingle, and you're not really sure where one begins and one ends, but it's both God and it's human initiative and activity working together to bring, up, bring about his plans, which gives me hope because maybe I get to play a little role in God's greater plan as well. And so Pharaoh loved the plan. Joseph says, tell you what, over the next seven years, we'll take a fifth of everything that comes in and we'll store it. So we have storehouses of food and grain. We can feed our people. We can sell it to the world. We can feed the world during those years of famine. And Pharaoh is blown away. He says, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Genesis forty-one thirty-two. So that puts Joseph in this place of power. <clears throat> and 20 years from the time, at least 20 years, from the time he's been sold into slavery, the famine hits hard in Canaan all over the civilized world. And Jacob, remember him from the beginning, he says to his sons, go down to Egypt and buy some grain. So Jacob sends the brothers down to Egypt, and in 42, verse 6, the dream that originally began all this stuff comes true. So when Joseph's brother arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground, just like the sheaves of grain bowed to Joseph, just like the stars surrounded Joseph and worshipped him. It had come to pass. What God said would happen, happened. It took 20 years, and I'm sure there were lots of moments when Joseph thought, I don't know what that dream was about, but it's definitely not going, it's definitely not trending that way. But in this moment... Delay after delay after delay is moved aside and God's will breaks through and his promises are kept. Joseph recognizes his brothers, but he doesn't reveal himself. He actually accuses them of being spies. And then for a couple chapters, I don't know if he's being, if he's trying to emotionally process through seeing his brothers again. I don't know if he's trying to get them back a little bit, a little bit of vengeance little bit of vindictiveness, but he kind of messes with them, but he also is really nice to them. (laughs) 
And so it's kind of uh, passive aggressive. And you can tell throughout the process, and I love this about Joseph, I love this about the Bible, that the emotions are real and the emotions are raw. And in 42, 24, you see Joseph described as turning away from his brothers, and he began to weep. He began to weep because he's trying. They still don't know who he is. Eventually, in verse 43, or I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. In verse 43, 30, we see another moment of humanity from, from Joseph. It says, deeply moved at the side of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into, into his private room and he wept there. So two different times, Joseph, trying to save face, has to turn aside or get out of the room and just break down. Joseph collects himself. He sends them back, uh, and he plants a cup in Benjamin's sack, his little brother that he didn't know he had. And so chaos breaks out again, and the brothers are all there. And finally, in chapter 45, all the brothers are back in Joseph's presence. And verse 1 says, Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph has this moment where he's had all he can take. He weeps, he cries out, he reveals himself. Of course, the brothers are terrified. And this beautiful crying and hug fest among bros breaks out. And all of this pent-up emotion and this pain from so many years comes out. Jacob, or Joseph, has this really powerful response, right? It's almost selective memory when he's making a choice as he interprets all that has happened. Because there's a lot of different options Joseph could have chosen here. Just like whatever situation you're bringing into this world today, whatever stuff you're bringing into this room, there's, I don't know, six or 700 people in here. There's six or 700 different interpretations of what life is really about and what is really going on in this room. And this is what Joseph chooses to believe. He says in, uh, we've got it on the screen here in chapter 45, Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years, there's been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. And, and after this moment happens, uh, the brothers, they go, they get their dad, they come back. They're still scared to death of Joseph. They know how they treated Joseph. And so they make up a story and they tell their dad that Joseph said everything's fine and he's not going to hurt us, blah, blah, blah. But they, they kind of make up the story. And in, verse, in chapter 50, Verses 19 through 21, Joseph tells his brothers, he reassures them again. Genesis 50, 19 19 through 21, don't be afraid. 
am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is being done, what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and he spoke kindly to them. So we get to this point in the Joseph story and we ask the question, okay, where was God in all this? And as we kind of walk through the different moments, the different points of pain, were there points of pain that had purpose that led him somewhere that otherwise he could not have been without those things? And as you look at the different stops along the way, God was in each and every one of those somewhere. He was originating dreams. He was giving the internal fortitude, the the character strength for Joseph to say no to Mrs. Potiphar when he could have said yes and probably had no uh, ramifications from it externally. When he's in prison, he gains the trust of the warden. He's given a place of responsibility. That came from God. When he's called to Pharaoh, God's the one who says, this is what the dreams mean. It's not Joseph in his wisdom or his genius. And during the family reunion, it's God that says, I've got deliverance in store, saving in store for my people. I just need some guy to do it. And unfortunately for you, Joseph, it's going to take 20 years of enslavement and imprisonment and being completely estranged and distanced from your homeland and family. But in the end, it's not about you. It's about me. It's about my purposes. It's about my plan. And that is a hard thing to absorb That's a hard thing to say, okay, God's got some kind of purpose in the pain. And so some some very simple lessons. I'm not saying anything that I believe everybody in here doesn't already know, but maybe this is a reminder that we need to remember this, that in the life of Joseph, it screams out that God will not leave you in the pain that he is right there with you, he's suffering with you, he's crying with you, he's weeping with you. But it, it's, it's not that he suffers with you. On the other hand, he's also at work. He is doing some things that we just can't figure out. He's working in ways that our minds would blow up if we really saw the whole handiwork of God and what he's up to. He is with us, he is at work. And because of those things, Joseph says, don't give up. Whether you're in a cistern, whether you're sold into slavery, whether you're rotting in a prison, whether you're away from your family, don't give up. Don't give up and don't lose hope because God is in this and God has a plan for this. Joseph's story, it doesn't really answer the why as much as the what. And sometimes we try to make Scripture do things that I don't think it really is trying to do. And what the story of Joseph is saying is God is at work, but it doesn't say why somebody had to be sold into slavery, why somebody had to be falsely accused and arrested, why somebody had to be sent away from the homeland. We just know God used those things, and it worked. And so this story all of us can relate to because all of us have been in painful places, and we're asking questions, and we're wondering why. 
When I think of painful moments in my life, I can think of a lot. One of the most painful moments is a story that I've shared with a lot of you. It happened when I was in Abilene, Texas, and I was a youth minister there. And we had a tragic accident coming back from Winterfest, and it was a January Sunday afternoon, and one of our SUVs flipped. It had eight people in the car, seven kids, and one incredibly responsible, wonderful mother. And she got off the road and overcorrected, and all those children were seriously injured, and one little boy who was a sixth grader named Brody died. And we were 32 miles from our destination. And it was so painful. And over a decade later, obviously, still a lot of pain. We don't get over stuff like that. We don't get the answers, but you don't have to know why to be able to ascribe purpose to the pain. And we had this moment. One of, one of the most powerful parts of that experience for me came in the form of my friend Jackie. She was a therapist. She was one of my parents uh, of kids in the youth group. She, was a ther- uh, uh, she kind of attached herself to me for about two weeks after that. And wherever I went, she just went. <laughs> she'd ride in cars with me to hospitals, and she'd just sit there. She just wanted to make sure I was okay. And she was such a tangible presence of God. And after a couple weeks, most of the kids, except for Brody, obviously, had gotten out of the hospital, and we went back to revisit the site. If you go to this next picture. And Jackie, uh, alongside the interstate, um, 32 miles outside of Abilene, she gave everybody a stone. And she said, I want you to write on this stone something ugly or painful that you saw. So lots of tears, really fighting through that. They were all middle school kids, <laughs> so trying to process that in some way. It's a very adult experience. And then Jackie said, turn the stone over. On the other, I want you to write something beautiful or something healing that you have seen that came out of that experience. That doesn't make the pain okay. It doesn't make the accident make sense. It just says there's beauty in the pain. And then we follow a God who joins us in the pain. So this morning, I'm going to ask you guys to kind of continue on this journey with me for a little bit. Um, We don't have rocks for you this morning, but we have some pieces of paper, and they're on the four tables back here. And in a moment, we're going to offer an invitation And if you want to respond publicly to the church, one of our shepherds will be right here, and you can come and you can share with him what you want shared with the church. But more than that, I think it's an invitation to ascribe purpose to the pain. I'm going to ask whoever is willing to just take a piece of paper and on one side write pain, whatever your painful experience is, whatever there is that has hurt your spirit, or has left you feeling numb, whatever it is that's made it really hard to get out of bed, just write that on one side, the ugliness, the hardness of your pain. And on the other side, will you just write something beautiful that you've seen that's come out of that pain?
What, what, what has God done? Where was God in that moment? Where was God in that experience? Because I think we're a church full of hurting, broken people, and there's healing when we say we believe that the pain is real and we're not going to pretend like we're not hurting. But on the other hand, that's not the whole story, that there's this other story where God has the last word and the tomb is empty, so we know that God's going to work in ways we can't fathom. So this is how I want to begin our invitation. And if you so choose, after we start singing, uh, just go back, grab a piece of paper, write something painful on one side, and write something you've seen God do on the other side, and leave it on a basket so we can pray about that. If you want to sign it, sign it. If you don't, that's okay. But we are a community of co-sufferers. We all have pain. Some of us are better than hiding it than others, but let's not hide our pain today. Let's share it and experience the hopefulness that comes from being real with each other. I'm going to list different points of pain, and if I mention a particular experience that has affected you deeply and personally, will you have the courage to stand up and acknowledge that pain? And please know you won't be standing alone. If you've dealt with cancer personally or in your family, will you stand? If you felt stuck in a job or career that's draining life from you, will you stand? If you've had suffered through the death of a spouse or a child, would you stand? If divorce or marital separation has struck you personally or hit close to home, will you stand? If part of your story includes addictions to alcohol or illegal or prescription drugs, food, pornography, social media, or other habits you can't get away from, will you stand? Spiritual apathy, and you're not even sure you care that you don't even care. If that describes your pain right now, will you stand up? If you live in fear, constant fear from world events, from future, from what's going to happen, where this world is going, will you stand? If you suffer from overwhelming financial crises or debt, will you stand? And if doubt in God and faith and that God has a bigger plan has gripped your head, gripped your heart, and gripped your soul, will you stand? What purpose can God give to that pain? The empty tune has the final word. We're going to have people to receive you all over this uh, sanctuary. If you have a public need, you can come here. But as we sing, I encourage you to move to tables, name the pain, and claim the God presence within it. Let's sing.